You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You are inside the QB factory where our magical development dust makes dreams come true. I am your host, Michael Kiss. This is all, of course, brought to you by the fine folk at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. And joining me, as always, to talk about quarterbacks around the world is quarterback one in our hearts, in our minds. He is Mark Schofield. Follow his work at Touchdown Wire, Pat's Pulpit, Big Blue View, Matt Waldman's RSP, all over the place. The guy has 50 jobs. Mark, brother. How you doing? I was better until about, say, like five minutes ago when we learned that Taysom Hill is now going to get yes. the start for the New Orleans Saints on Sunday, which means I have to spend the rest of my Friday <sighs> not playing Valhalla, but instead having to like watch Taysom Hill and get a sense of who he is as a quarterback, which is not what I wanted to do. But we forge on. I was, I was excited to see Jameis. I was excited to see Jameis too, if only for that strange – author that might be a Jameis Winston Burner account that wrote that book about Jameis and the truth about Jameis. And it's like Winston 101 is his Twitter handle and he like slide into my DMs to yell at me about how great Jameis Winston is. I was kind of excited to see him. Oh, wait, no. He just DM'd me. Oh, dear God. Jameis 101 DM? (laughs) Wow. Dude. Anyway. um, Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Um. So, yeah, uh, um, we have to talk about Taysom Hill uh, at some point, just in the NFL space. I'm not saying we have to do that here, but we right. do, what we do have to do here is our historical reference. And I was all ginned up, as you might expect, um, to do a Vikings reference. I was actually going to do something about Mercia and Berglund and Ken Berglund and how you know, they ran him away. But then I was reading, and the longtime gentle listeners know that I've been working my way through this book about popes for, I think, two seasons now. <laughs> um, but I was reading this last night and I felt like, look, this was too good a story to pass up. It's a story about Pope Celestine V. And we quote from now John Julius Norwich's book, The Popes. After Pope Nicholas died in April 1292, the 12 living cardinals met in Rome to deliberate. They took their time deliberating for 27 months before picking one of the most unsuitable men ever to occupy the papal throne. He was Pietro del Morone, an 85-year-old peasant who had lived for more than six decades as a hermit in the Abruzzi. And his only qualification was that once, appearing briefly at the court of Gregory X, he had hung up his outer habit on a sunbeam. There is a fascinating account by one of its members of the journey of a five-man papal embassy to his mountain hermitage, only to find that Charles II of Naples had already got there. They found the new pope and estate virgin on panic, but he recovered and at last after a prolonged period of prayer, reluctantly accepted the papal throne. Now, true, there had long been a prophecy of an angel pope who would usher in the age of the spirit, but it is hard to see how anyone 
viewing the agonizing old man astride a donkey being led to his consecration, could have believed that the papacy was indeed in safe hands, or any hands at all. Celestine V quickly proved himself to be nothing more than a puppet of Charles II, even taking up residence in the Castel Nuovo that still dominates the harbor of Naples. Within it, he ordered the building of a small wooden cell, the only place where he could feel at home. He refused to see his cardinals, whose wordliness and sophistication terrified him. When he did so, they were obliged to abandon their elegant Latin and adopt the crude vernacular that was the only language he could understand. The duties of the papacy, political, diplomatic, and administrative, he ignored them. Favors were bestowed on anyone who asked for them. No wonder he lasted for just five months, then wisely announced his abdication at the time the first in papal history. The architect of this abdication was Cardinal Benetto Catalini, who is said to have introduced a small speaking tube into Celestine's cell through which, in the small hours of the night, he would simulate the voice of God, warning him of the flames of hell if he were to continue in office. It was certainly Catalini who drafted the deed of renunciation that, on December the 13th of 1294, the Pope read out to the assembled cardinals, before solemnly stripping off the papal robes and revealing himself once again in his hermit rags. Now, oh, if the man. story ended there, it would be great. But it doesn't yeah. end there for our dear hero, Celestine V, because the next pope, Pope Boniface, was afraid that Celestine would become an anti-pope because he was still rather popular with, as you might expect, the poor members of the church. And so his predecessor... You know, Celestine had like fled to the hills, but no, no, no. He went and he tracked him down and he dragged him back to Rome to make uh. sure that he couldn't, you know, emerge as an antipope. But Celestine, as Norwich writes, on the journey back to Rome, the new pope was furious to learn that Celestine had somehow slipped away and taken once again to the hills. He gave immediate orders for his pursuit and arrest by force if necessary. It took some time. Despite his age, Celestine was still remarkably quick on his feet. But at last, Celestine was found and brought before his formidable successor. It was then that Celestine is said to have uttered his famous prophecy, quote, You have entered like a fox, you will reign like a lion, and you will die like a dog. Nice. And so... I think that brings us, Michael, to the Eagles' offense. And the 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 picture, by the way, that I just got in my head of you doing that was like two old popes in like full guard, like running yeah. through the forest. Yeah, chasing it, each it, other. it was like the Pine Barrens episode of The Sopranos, except they're like two old popes. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. And oh my god, I mean, we we have to talk about this Eagles' offense. Unfortunately. Like we literally have to, because that's what this show is. But let's 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 talk about it. So what we do every week, obviously the historical reference, and then we talk about you know the Carson Wentz performance review against the last opponent. That was of course the the Giants in a pretty terrible loss. And then we'll uh, do a preview of Baker Mayfield, the upcoming enemy quarterback. So let let's let's you look at this game from Wentz, and I'm curious how you saw this one, Mark, because a, a common theme that I've seen from Beats and people that cover the Eagles. Uh, is that Wentz didn't do enough to win it and didn't do enough to lose it, that he wasn't good, wasn't bad. He was just kind of a wall decoration to a pretty horrible scene in the room. Uh, th there's been plenty of criticism to go around, even though I think we can get like caught up in trying to find a singular issue and just narrowing in on that. Um, I, I think the problem is everybody right now. For instance, everybody wants to blame Doug. That's the hot button to push right now. Uh, from my view, they aren't wrong in terms of what they came into this game with and criticizing that. He's not the only problem, though. 
Jason Kelsey had his worst game in a long time with some bad snaps, getting pushed around by that robust Giants interior. The offensive line as a whole gave up a 42% pressure rate. That was third most on the week. Some of that's on Wentz, but not all of it. The Eagles had four drops per PFF. That was tied for most in the week. And this is something that I've been trying to say since weeks one and two. It's one thing if it's just Wentz performing poorly or not doing enough. It's another thing if it's coaching, if it's offensive line, if it's receiving targets, and Wentz not doing enough. Because you don't just have one problem to fix. You've got several. So I gave you a lot to go with there. But how do you view this disjointed passing attack against the Giants in this one? Let me turn it around to you in the form of a question. Okay. Who in the Eagles' entire organization is doing a good job right now? That's the that we don't know. Yeah, <laughs> we, like, I mean, who? there's your answer. <laughs> like it's all bad, and we talked about this, you know, in the context of some other teams. We've talked about it in the context of Wentz. It's one thing when there's one thing to fix. Whether it's you need to call these plays, you need mm-hmm. to fix your left foot, you mm-hmm. need to sit down with your quarterback after each offensive possession and go over what just happened with him. I saw that that was a little bit of a hot button issue. I saw Trey Thomas last night, you know, during the Cardinals Seahawks game say, Oh, look, there's a quarterback sitting down with his coach after a drive. Interesting. Mm -hmm. We obviously Mm -hmm. know the reference that's being made there. It's all of that stuff and more. There are a lot of problems with this offense right now. There are a lot of problems with this coaching staff right now. There are a lot of problems with this organization from a roster construction standpoint right now. And they're all sort of coming home to roost. But I do think one place that I would like to at least address – remember, I don't know if it was our last show or the one before that. You had asked me you know, if there was one throw that you would want to see from Wentz where you were like, okay, it's going to be a good day. And I was like, yeah, "Yeah, the post route, you know? Yeah. What is it? First and 10, first quarter, 10-19 mark. He tries to throw a post route. Yes. To Alshon Jeffrey over the middle against cover and three. And it's high. And it's high. Mm-hmm. And there you go, kids. I mean, yep. that's it. So <laughs> I I don't know what to tell you. I I, I Like I said, I, I was hoping, you know, in a, in a way we would find a way to avoid doing this show this week. <laughs> and I went for a six-minute historical reference in, in, you know, large part because I don't know what to say. And that's yeah. not something that people on shows, on podcasts, on radio hits like to do. We don't like to come out and say, I don't know what to say, but I honestly don't. This is a bad <laughs> offense. It is a bad situation. I don't know how it get, gets fixed. And perhaps the best news we could give Eagles fans is Miles Garrett won't be able to play Sunday. Right. There you go. Which is massive because, man, it's his production just bonkers. Brandon Thorne just came out with his true sack rate, and he was showing that Miles and he, and he rates these different you know sacks from these edge defenders and gives them like a quality score essentially. So like you beat a left, you beat a really good left, left tackle with a really good move and you get a clean sack. Like that's a high quality sack, right? You get a clean up sack. That's lesser. You beat a running back. That's lesser. Miles Garrett is getting a high quality sack per Brandon Thorne. Once every what? 55 snaps. Yeah. When, when the next closest is that like 105 snaps, 109 snaps, just, just killing it out there. So that's a good thing. But Mark, going back to this Giants game, and I'm, I'm sorry to pout on this, but like I was, I was watching it this morning and rewatching it for the third time. God save me. When you go to the film, and the first play you see on the first drive is that RPO tagged with the bubble, and you see that the Eagles get what they want, both in terms of the numbers in the box for the run and numbers to the trip side bubble because the Giants bring the nickel on a blitz. 
And this screen to Greg Ward goes for eight, but that's because Ward breaks the tackle and Travis Fulgham probably gets away with a hold or a block in the or a block in the back or both. It's so frustrating if you're looking at that and evaluate valuing process over results because the pre-snap process is good the, and the execution just stinks to the point where even successful plays are just a grind and you feel like you got away with one. And this was a scoring drive because you still have in, in that drive, and this is why I'm frustrated, in that drive you still have the, the miss on the post to Alshon, which we said this is the heat check, this is the throw that we want to see him hit somebody in the eyes. He does it on Alshon there. You have another high throw to Goddard that is dropped. There's a false start from Rager. You've got Wentz on third and three to Rager, holstering it on a rub route that messes up the timing on a timing concept designed to beat the exact coverage that they got. There is something going wrong with some part of this offense every step of the way. And like one of the uglier plays in the game was that play action boot where it's just like there's, there's no chance this is going to work because Carson Wentz has a guy on his back within the first two seconds. And I'm not trying to make excuses for Wentz. I think what I'm trying to say is it's it's and you said the same thing. It's so hard to point the finger the finger at one thing, and it's so hard because of that to judge each of those individual things by themselves. Because if it's Wentz, yeah, okay, I could see why Wentz would be bad with the bad offensive line play, with the bad coaching. I could see why the coaching would look bad because the execution on the field is poor. It's like who the heck do we blame? And I think that's the biggest problem that that we have with this. It's just like, and, and it goes back to your point. You mentioned the front office. I'll put it across the entire team. Who is performing well on this team? What unit is consistently performing well on this team? Because there isn't, on offense, there's not a single unit. There's not a single player other than like one or two here and there. There's not a single coach. There's not a single person in that front office that has shown that they've done a good job over the past two years. And it's incredibly frustrating. And that's why we're at this point where I'm just I'm not even asking Mark a question. I'm just like venting to him. Yeah, look, this is this is a therapy session more than a podcast. That's what this is. (laughs) And, you know, we have 10 fingers and we don't have enough fingers to point blank. We just yeah. don't. You know, I think what's interesting when you watch this game or you rewatch this game is that, you know, you do see sort of a concerning pattern where we've gone from Travis Fulgham has made his way into the Carson Wentz circle of trust to now he is the Carson Wentz circle of trust. Right. You know, and I think a great example of that is the throw late, the second and 10 where he tries to hit him along the right sideline, you know, on that sort of out route. Yeah. You know, this is fourth quarter, 257. It's a mirrored – it's 363. I mean, this is what we called it in college. Ball's on the left hash mark, and one of our reads is take your easier throw. You know, mm. if it's cover three, take your easier throw. And you've got Jalen Ragor on his out route to the left sideline. That's the easier throw, and it's open because yes. you get cover three. It's a spot drop cover three. It's like basic day one install defensive stuff. But he goes right to, you know, Travis Fulgham on the right side, which is the tougher throw. And he makes a pretty decent throw. It's out on time, in rhythm. It's a catchable ball. But you're making the job harder on yourself. Yeah. You know, and when you have a situation where there is blame across the board and everybody is struggling, it's kind of that quicksand moment from the replacements, you know, that Keanu Reeves scene. When you then make it tougher by making it harder on yourself, you're not doing yourself any favors. You know, and whether it's he doesn't trust Rago or whatever, I don't understand, but you're making that a tough throw. You're making life tougher on yourself when you do that. And oh, by the way, you're challenging James Bradbury, who we talked about last week, is a critical, you know, component of their defense and a very good cornerback. So you know, I I don't know what else to say. Everything's bad right now. There are no easy fixes. 
the easiest thing might just be the fact that Miles Garrett, who is legitimately an MVP candidate, is not going to be chasing Carson Wentz this week. All right. And, and you look at that throw, and I scrubbed forward to the next play while you were talking there, which is a sack. And yeah. it's not on Wentz. He's no. got some time. There is literally nobody open. Yeah. I, what do you do in that situation on third and 10? Like, he, of course, he holds on to the ball because he's, he's trying to find something. Right. He's trying to navigate this pocket. And it just eventually is going to collapse on him. There's literally nobody open. Goddard can't get out for the check release, or I mean, it's just, just bad, man. It's such a slog. I'm so, I'm so bored watching this offense. Okay, uh, Mark, any thoughts on what you want to see from them this week? Any, any suggestions on how to fix this thing, or are you just like throw your hands in the air? It's, it's a throw your hands in the air, wave them around like you just don't care situation. <laughs> because I think we have lost the capacity to care about this offense, and. <laughs> You know, again, hi, the people that signed my checks probably aren't happy to hear that. But what else can we say about this offense? Like we've been beating ourselves on our heads against the wall with this offense for the past six weeks. And there's no easy answer. It's yeah. not just a, oh, let's start Jalen Hurts. That's not fixing anything. It's not a, oh, let's call more RPOs. As we just talked about, they called one early in this game yeah. and it took an act of papacy for them to get eight yards. Right, I mean, right, right. let's, let's – what are we doing here? So, you know, I, I think establish the run. I don't know. <laughs> like, what what are we doing out here? What are we doing? Right. And with the guard play they've gotten, that ain't exactly – That's not uh, exactly going to work. I don't know. I mean, do what Matt Nagy did with Mitchell Trubisky and just run 18 and 19 power until they show you you can stop it. <laughs> Maybe you do that. That's I don't exciting. Know. That's yeah. sexy. I can't yeah. wait to watch that. Flex bone, baby. I mean, <laughs> why not just run the flex bone with Jalen Hurts? I don't know. At least they'll give us something to talk about. That's why they brought in Jordan Howard to play that yeah. that that fullback. He's going to be the B back, and you're yeah. going to have you know Boston Scott at one wing. You know, maybe put Jalen Hurts at the other wing. I, hey, you know, a little forty eight sweep. <laughs> yeah, a little forty eight sweep. Little little dive option stuff. Let me tell you, flex bone is is what I ran in in high school. Yeah, and I I was uh, I was an A and C back. I love that offense so much. Oh, I wish there was more. Of it. I, that's I was recruited to run that in college. Like, really, the the college offense that I was recruited into, um, we were a flex bone team my freshman year, and then they scrapped that, and they were like, "No, we're going to turn you into a pocket quarterback." And I'm like, "I'm five cap." <laughs> like, what are we doing here? So they moved me to wide receiver my sophomore year. So yeah, but yeah, I mean, let's you let's know. run the flex bone. Come on. Yeah. Do it for the board. takes. Sean Payton starting Taysom Hill for the takes. Why can't Doug run the flex mode for the takes? Um, you're going to see them in a single wing offense. At oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. He's been obsessed with that ever since his uh, his kids' uh, youth football team got ran out the gym by a team that was running single wing. He was calling Bill Parcells. Remember that? He yeah. was calling Bill Parcells for advice on how to stop it because he's like, this team is running up 48 points a game running single wing. I don't. It's so old. I don't know what to do against it. <laughs> Football coaches are crazy individuals. Yes. Yeah. Period. Full stop. Yep. All right. So when we come back, we'll get to the uh, upcoming opponent for the Eagles. We'll get to the Cleveland Browns and some Baker Mayfield. Got a lot to figure out there, too. That's coming up next here on The Factory. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
Questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And we're back here on the QB Factory, episode 17, SB Nation, Bleeding Green Nation, bringing it to you. Michael Kist here with Mark Schofield. And as we do every week, we are going to preview the upcoming opponent for the Eagles. That's the Cleveland Browns. That is Baker Mayfield. And Mark, as we get into Baker Mayfield here, let, let's do a bit of a career reset because I know we were both big Baker fans coming out and uh, things with the Browns have been interesting, to say the least, throughout his career. Mm-hmm. First overall selection, 2018 NFL Draft. He starts 13 games as a rookie, plays in a total of 14 because he comes in for Tyrod Taylor. He gives them a spark and a win. Bit of a bumpy ride for the first half of the rookie season. And then even with some down performances, you see some real promises in games against Atlanta, Cincinnati twice. Carolina was a good one. Overall, you're pretty pleased with what you see coming into 2019, especially with the resources that they dump into the offense that offseason. Of course, we know that 2019 was a circus for the Browns. There's Freddie Kitchens going rogue and tossing out game plans on Sundays. There's his quarrelsome relationship with offensive coordinator Todd Monken. Uh, he loses a weapon when Njoku's hurt. Uh, Odell Beckham is nursing injuries for most of the season. There's a lot going on there. And, and it's no wonder that Baker struggles a ton uh, that year, along with reasons solely relating to him. So before we get into the 2020 regular season, I want I want to stop there for a second what had we seen from Baker? What did we want to see from him entering 2020? Well, I think what was interesting about Baker is I've talked about this idea before that sometimes quarterbacks just are who they are. And as much as we want to buy into development and maturity and refinement. things to death. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They just – they're finished products for the most part. I mean, Mitchell Trubisky – He's a finished product. And Baker's that too. Baker is a guy who, for whatever reason, continues to seek out chaos. That's his like fallback position. You know, he's somebody that will vacate clean pockets. You saw that last year. You saw that his rookie year. And, you know, not not that we wanted to get into 2020 already, but you saw that in week one. So he's a guy that wants to vacate pockets. And when you see his numbers from clean pockets, you might understand why. Last year, there was no quarterback worse in the league from a clean pocket than (laughs) Baker Mayfield. He he just struggled for them. And I don't know if it's a comfort thing, if it's a height thing, whatever the reason, Baker just, I don't like clean pockets. I'm going to run around and create. And maybe it's just a simple fact that he had so much success doing that dating back to Oklahoma that that was where he felt most comfortable. And so what I was curious to see was, okay, and I said this on many a show, many a podcast, he's going to be in an offense now with Kevin Stefanski with so much boot action stuff. He's got talent around him. If he can't get it figured out in this system, in this environment, he's not going to get it figured out. Do you watch Shameless? I do. You know Fiona? Yes. Shameless? Yes. Fiona Gallagher, gentle listener, if, you, if you're watching the show. Doesn't doesn't that kind of remind you of, of Fiona, where like she's got things starting to trend in the right direction, and then she just makes a decision that just totally blows everything yeah. up. 
That's kind of that's kind of Baker Mayfield. Self-destructive personality. That's Baker right. Mayfield in the pocket. Yep, Fiona in a clean pocket. Yeah. She's going to make a mess. There's out your of show it. title, Fiona <laughs> in a clean pocket. Now, 2020, enter Kevin Stefanski. Uh, even pre Beckham injury, there's some real ups and downs. Uh, he's good against the Bengals twice. He stinks it up against the Steelers. Mm-hmm. Can he play from behind? Is he only good with a lead because of how the offense wants to operate, right? Run first, heavy play action. Six of his seven interceptions come with no play action. Uh, he's towards the bottom of the league in advanced accuracy metrics. The ball isn't coming out quick enough. He's creating chaos where there is none. But at the same time, you still get the C throws. The, the deep ball isn't great, but it's good enough. There are still some positives there. And, and correct me if you if you disagree with anything I just said, but it feels like same Baker, different year. Like you were saying, finished product, he is who he is. The situa- uh, situation around him may change, get better, get worse. But, I mean, this year he's getting improved line play. The pressure rate is significantly down. He's got better support from the run game. Like they're, they're running offenses ninth in DVOA compared to 17th last year. They just put up 231 yards on the ground uh, against Houston last week. There's also better play calling with Stefanski, who has given them, at the very least, an identity when there wasn't one. What do you see from from Baker this year as far as like any catastrophic shifts? I kind I kind of know your answer already, but like this year, what is the book on Baker? Do we say he's below average? Is he average? What is he? I'd say he's average. I mean, mm. he's an average NFL quarterback that's getting the benefit of play calling and improved line play. I mean, you look at what Jedrick Willis has done, you know, yeah. stepping in. He's been fantastic. They have one of the best, if not the best, guard tandems in the league oh, right yeah. now, you know, between Teller and Patino. Um, Teller, you know, I read some articles when I was doing a, a piece on potential MVPs, people making the case that he should get MVP consideration because of what he's meant to that offensive line. Now, a guard's not winning an MVP, but right. he's playing extremely well. Chubb, Hunt, you know, two running backs that give you over 100 yards. First time that happened for the Browns in a long time since, I think, the Jim Brown days. Yeah. So he's getting a ton of help around him. I mean, I think what's interesting is we just mentioned how much he loves chaos. And what do you think a quarterback loves chaos? You'll think he'll be good when he's pressured. Baker Mayfield has not been good when pressured this year. Now, it hasn't happened a ton given the line play, um, but he's just got an adjusted completion percentage of 40 when he's been pressured this year, according to PFF, which is 26th in the league. Yeah, that's bad. Not great, but you only have a situation where he's been pressured, I think, like 10 times according to their charted. You know, there's not really a lot to glean from that. I think just the main thing to think about when you think about this Cleveland Browns offense and Baker Mayfield is they want it to be a run-first team with play action off of that. Like, that's mm-hmm. where they want to be. They want him to be a point guard facilitator. They don't want to do too much. They don't want to put the ball in his hands. You know, there will be times when even last week against Houston, he created chaos when he didn't need to. And so I think there will be opportunities to get pressure on him and move him off the spot and get him running around a little bit where, yes, sometimes he'll make a big play, but other times he's going to make a bad one. So, I mean, I, I think he's an average quarterback that gets the benefit of better play calling and better offensive line play. From a production standpoint, I think the problem is they just aren't creating explosives and there yeah. isn't enough consistency there to mask that, mask that deficiency, especially now with Odell out. People are asking the question, is Baker going to be better without Odell? Man, probably not on the whole. Right. You still want those big plays, like only 21 plays of 20 plus yards uh, uh, gains through the air, right? Third worst in the league tied with, get this. Philadelphia and New England, interestingly enough. And Mark, I know we know how toothless our respective offenses can be in the passing attack at times throughout the season. And to be in that same conversation is pretty ugly for Cleveland. Uh, They also hadn't had a deficiency in talent at the receiving options either. I mean, Beckham has been there for seven games. Let's call it six because the injury happened so early in that one. 
You've got Jarvis Landry. You paid Austin Hooper in the offseason. He's been good. Kareem Hunt is a weapon in the pass game. There are guys to work with. And like for all of Philadelphia's faults, they're tied for third in limiting explosives in the passing game. And unless Baker becomes this like quick game distributor, which are the guys that usually really hurt the Eagles, I can see him causing some trouble for himself, even this one, even with solid protection up front. I think Cleveland comes out with a game plan to run, 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 then pick the, pick on those linebackers, whoever they're going to be in the play action game. Keep it safe. Keep it simple, stupid. Uh, the Eagles have struggled to generate pass rush against play action. Their linebackers are dodo birds. And I can see this being real boring, unless, of course, you're Mark Schlereth, who is, in fact, I think going to be on the call on this one, if I'm not mistaken. Do you kind of see the same thing? Like, boring, boring, run game, run game, run game, pick on the linebackers on crossers and leaks from the tight ends and stuff like that from the passing game? You know, if you're Kevin Stefanski, you probably want to be in a situation where Baker's throwing maybe 20 to 25 passes. You want to really be relying on the ground game. And look, the Cleveland Browns, and Weather certainly has played a role in that, They've played some ugly games in the past couple of weeks. I mean, you look at that game against the Raiders a couple of weeks ago, and it was like 16-6. to 6. Yeah. I mean, last week, 10-7, and that was a weather game too. Right. Like, they've played some ugly games. They're happy to play in ugly games, mm-hmm. you know, because they are an offense that because of what Baker Mayfield is as a quarterback, because of how their offense is constructed conceptually, they want to be in positive or neutral game scripts. Like they don't want to get into shootouts, you know. Yeah. They don't if they get down, you know. And Baker was hurt against Pittsburgh, so I mean that's one thing. But you look at season opener against Baltimore; they get down early. They're not going to be able to throw themselves back into games, and that's when they had Odell. Right. Um. So they want to keep it ugly. They want to play rock fights. And if you're an Eagles fan that just got done watching that Giants game, you're, you know, it gets to be around noontime on Sunday, and you're like, oh, let's let's watch a game. Let's get excited. I got some bad news for you. It might be pretty ugly. Boy, you're going to be a fun one. Yeah, Yeah, seriously. I mean, did we just (laughs) – we've probably got some gentle listeners reaching for the alcohol like right now. Yeah. I think it's going to be a boring one overall. It's just like, get me out of here. What time is that Saints game? Oh, boy. Is the Saints game on at the same time? Probably not. Well, it's Saints Falcons, so it might be. Like I don't, I don't, I don't want the Eagles in prime time for because I don't want like the world to see my messy house, right? Right. <laughs> it's like if my house is a mess, I don't want people in it. That's kind of how I feel about the Eagles in prime time. But at the same time, I don't want the Eagles at one o'clock because I want to watch all these one o'clock games, including Falcon Saints, which is at one o'clock. <laughs> right. So I mean, kids, it's a dual TV afternoon <laughs> yes. if you can, if you can get that set up, you know, because you're going to want to see the train wreck that could be Taysom Hill at quarterback. Yeah, plus you get Patriots-Texans. Don't watch that game. (laughs) Don't watch that game, kids. Titans-Ravens. That could be a real fun one. That could be a fun one. Jets-Chargers. How about that at 4 o'clock? What's the 4 o'clock slate? Is there anything good there? Oh, Packers-Colts. I think that's that's the best one. Packers-Colts is the big one. Rematch Um, of Chiefs-Raiders at night. That's going to be a good game Sunday night. Rams-Packers Monday night. So it gets really good in the primetime games, in my opinion. yeah. So, so you know what's going to happen. You know, right. the Texans-Pats game is going to be the best game of the week. And you're going to get blowouts on these primetime games. But I think, Mike, the fact that we're working our way through the schedule, which is something in the three-year run of this show we've never done before, tells the gentle listeners all they need to know about the state of the Philadelphia Eagles offense. Yep. Good well, times. Mark- I'm going to go raid some monasteries. I agree. I'm gonna I'm gonna edit this. I'm gonna edit a couple other things, and then my Friday night is, is gonna be all about. I think I'm gonna drink out some Bud Light seltzers. Maybe, maybe, maybe use it as a mixer, depending on how I feel. If I have to watch any more Eagles 
tape in pre- in uh, preparation for this Kiss and Solak yeah, show. Can... I might get day drunk. We'll figure it out. All right. That's been the QB Factory, episode 17. Rate, review, subscribe. Go dominate. Have yourself a day. <laughs> <laughs>